Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 190, How to Obtain Your Australian Pilot Certificate, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to a special episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Hey, are you looking for an adventure? I'll tell you what, why don't you just rent a small plane and fly around Australia? That sounds like a lot of fun. Better yet, why not get your Australian pilot certificate? Well, today I have with me someone who decided not only to ponder these ideas, but put them into action by obtaining his pilot certificate and actually flying in Australia. Most importantly, he wants to make you realize that you also can become an Australian pilot. This, of course, is centered more towards those folks that are in America right now. Chris Pazala has been on the show before. He's an airline pilot in the United States and is also seeking a new adventure. He's a lecturer and author of The Advanced Guide to Holding Patterns and an aviation attorney. Chris has been on our show in the past, and you've, uh, we've talked all sorts of things. Aviation is very, very much passionate about flying and aviation. Let's do the pre-flight. But before we talk to Chris, just a quick note from our sponsor. Our sponsor is AviationCareersPodcast.com. Don't forget, we have one of the largest guides, a scholarships guide out there for only $10. You can actually get access to that for a year. We also do career coaching and interview prep and have a new course coming out, the Airline Pilot Interview Prep Course. And uh, that's actually, those videos have been, uh, are being recorded right now, but the first video is free. It's the... 10 commonly missed questions on an airline pilot interview. And also, if you're a GA pilot and you're into aviation as far as instruments, that might be one you want to check out because most of the interview questions are instrument questions. So it's a nice review for you. Now entering cruise flight. Let's get started. Uh, Again, Chris Pazala, who's uh, speaking with us. I think it's from uh, Florida and uh, just same place we are right here in Lakeland, just on the East Coast, I think. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Carl. It's uh, great to have you back on, and uh, congratulations, let's see, uh, on a new adventure. You're also working on getting your uh, Embraer 190 certificate because you just took a job with a major airline. Uh, That's correct. Actually, um, I've flown the 175 of the Embraer series, so uh, I'm doing the differences training to move into the 190. Awesome, awesome. Now, that sounds really cool, and it's a congrats and on to the new adventure. Just like everything else in your life, you like to have adventures, and boy, uh, you just uh, talk about an adventure pilot. You truly are one, but uh, you know, it's interesting. We, We talked about this before, Chris, and just our audience in Australia, we just love them, and, and they're terrific people, and they're very passionate about aviation in Australia. But I'd like to know, why is it that you chose, of all places, some places, especially from America that's very far away, why did you choose <laughs> Australia? 
Well, people always tell me my thinking's upside down, so I thought I should pick a country that matched that. Wow. <laughs> We're going to get some um, heat on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, no, more, more practically, um, a few years ago, I was working for an airline that went through a financial problem, and I had this opportunity to go to law school. And uh, while I was doing that, the law school offered a study abroad trip to Australia, and it was a, a whole Australian semester. It ran about five months. And so I'm over in Australia, and I go over to the Melbourne International Air Show, and, I, and I'm at the big air show, and I'm like, why not? Why not get an Australian ATP, and then if I ever want to fly in Australia, I'm ready to go. So have you ever flown in Australia before? Uh, not before that uh, opportunity. Wow. So what? But before we talk about the certificate, I mean, what what's it like from from our perspective? You know, and here in America, what's it like to fly in Australia? Uh, well, in the urban or sort of city areas that you see along the coast, it's actually very similar to flying in the U.S. We have smaller airports, uh, everything from grass uh, runways to small paved runways. And then you also see the larger airports, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, but then as you move inland, it gets very, very rural to a level we're not used to in the United States. And the airports in these areas are so spread out that in some places they have to use high-frequency radios even over land, which is not something we normally do in the U.S. Wow. So in a, in a GA airplane, you have HF radio. You would. You would see something like a, uh, a Piper Aztec with an HF radio. So oh, so you said Piper Aztec. So that's a, a U.S. built. Are, are most of the planes there U.S. or are they yeah, From my experience... Uh, the bulk of the airplanes are uh, North American, U.S. and Canadian-built airplanes. Uh, so you see a lot of Cessna, Piper, uh, de Havilland. I had the chance to fly in a de Havilland Beaver at one point. That was absolutely wonderful, uh, and a DC-3 for that matter. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, you know, there's some really cool people that have done adventures flying all the way around Australia. We spoke to them. I'll have some links in the show notes. Uh Owen Zupp, of course, a great individual who's written a lot about flying in Australia and flying in general. But these people, and I'd like to get your feedback on this, it just seems that they're incredibly passionate about their aviation in Australia. Uh, they really are. The Australian aviation community is a lot smaller than it is in the U.S., both because the population of Australia is smaller, but also the percentage of people engaged in it is a little bit smaller. But yet it's really, really important uh, to Australia to be able to reach all these far points and to stay connected. So uh, it's a really great community. I've gotten to know some of the pilots and the instructors. And I went back a few years later after my first visit, and people remembered me. And that was just such a great experience. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I really I, every time I've spoken with Australians and they've always been so welcoming. They're just a, a bunch of a welcoming folks in general. Just a, I would love to visit. That's one of the, the on my bucket list is Australia. Never had on my bucket list though actually getting a pilot certificate in Australia. That I always thought it was a daunting task, but you're someone who's actually done it. So first of all, tell us um, and hopefully I'm using the right term. Maybe I'm not. Uh, what it's like to get your pilot certificate down there. So, um, yep, they tend to use the term certificate or, or license as well. Um, so I'm finishing up the ATP conversion, and um, it's, a, it's a bit of a process. Um, they're very organized and very uh, regimented. Uh, but since the ATP is a top level, they want to go through not only the paperwork and the written uh, tests, or they call them theory exams, uh, they also have a check ride. So right now I'm working out the check ride portion 
Uh, if somebody was to go and fly uh, with a private pilot certificate, that wouldn't be um, a much easier process. So uh, the private pilot, the last time I checked, does not require a, a check ride. It's more of a paperwork function. Uh, and there's a few other little tests that they have in order to go ahead and make that conversion. So so the pilot certificate is is a certificate of validation. Is that what it's called? Uh, so there's two options. There's the full pilot certificate, which would be for somebody who's actually moving to Australia. Um, and then they have what they call a certificate of validation. And I think this is most of what your audience will be interested in. The certificate of validation is an approval by the Australian government to use your U.S. pilot certificate in Australia. So it avoids having to do a lot of the uh, paperwork for the full conversion. So, for instance, if you want to go to Australia for a couple months and travel around, this would be a good option. It's cheaper and, and much less involved than some of the other options. Interesting. So that uh, so what is it that you actually got your pilot certificate, right? So I did the certificate of validation initially, and now I'm working on the pilot certificate. But um, because I'm doing it at the ATP level, um, the check ride has to be in a simulator for a transport category airplane. So um, I've got to go back down and take the check ride in, say, a 737 or an Airbus 320-type sim. So um, that's the only part I need to go back and finish up. Interesting, interesting. So and from my perspective as a U.S. pilot, and, and I get to fly in a lot of different countries, so I always get to ask this question. I'm in the U.S., and most of us listening are in the U.S. What are some of the big differences between the United States flying and also flying in Australia? Uh, so in Australia, it's a smaller community, so we, we see a bit more regulation. It's it's a little bit easier for the Australian government to be directly involved, and they are directly involved. A lot of things that would not be a government function in the United States, such as certifying for tailwheel, it is a government function with the Australian system. So it's a little more involved, uh, but in some ways it's also a little more organized that they do it that way. Um, in terms of the actual flying, I mean, it's an absolutely beautiful country. It's a very large country. It's almost as big geographically as the United States. And just like the United States, it has varying terrains. You're going anywhere from mountains to rainforests. Um, at one point, I uh, had the opportunity to fly in a, uh, a twin Piper series airplane up in the northeast, and we departed the Cairns Airport and actually went up to the furthest north point in Australia and got to fly over the rainforest and along the uh, the coast. So it's an absolutely beautiful place. Wow. That just sounds awesome. And just the pictures I've seen are just phenomenal. When you talked about their certificate, though, and the pile certificate, we have uh, the FAA here. Uh, is there an organization that they use? Is it similar name? So they do. They have the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, um, a very British-sounding name, uh, but it goes by the acronym CASA. And so uh, CASA uh, handles all the same functions as the FAA in terms of uh, regulations and certification. Gotcha. So instead of – now go back. You talked about certificate of validation. Um, what made you actually go towards just the pilot certificate or to get the pilot certificate? Uh, so I actually had planned that from the beginning. I did the validation just um, so I'd have the opportunity to fly while I was working on it. Um, but a few years ago when I was in law school, um, the U.S. aviation industry was not doing as well as it is now. And so I was looking for other opportunities, and I, I really fell in love with Australia. And, you know, Jetstar and Qantas and all these airlines were really great companies. And so I said, you know, I might want to work for one of them. So I was seriously considering that. 
And the process for the ATP conversion, because it's a little more involved, it's easier to do if you're already in Australia. So I said, if I'm going to do this, this should be the moment to at least get the certification done. Gotcha. That makes sense. So the regulations, I'm assuming, are are different in other ways that we don't know about. I mean, there's, you know, ICAO, and they have, I guess, some are actually within those ICAO standards or try to be standardized just like ICAO. But just like in the U.S., there's things that are specific to uh, Australia, just like in the U.S., that we have our own regulations that don't, don't quite match up with ICAO. So uh, what are some of those differences? Right. And so um, I should probably mention a little bit about ICAO. ICAO is the Civil Aviation uh, Organization, International Civil Aviation Organization, which is a department of the UN. And their job is to help standardize international air travel. Um, but they're not a regulatory agency. They don't make rules. Instead, what they do is they look for best practices or ways that things can be done best internationally, and they recommend those, and they create a model, sometimes referred to as uh, rule by model. And then countries decide uh, how much of that they want to adopt and how little they want to adopt. And so larger countries like the United States or Australia tend to adopt portions of it, but also have to adopt adopted and adapted a little bit to their own uh, unique needs. But when you see smaller countries or countries that have a lot of neighboring countries, they tend to adopt a larger portion of the ICAO model so that they can standardize with the other countries. Um, so Australia, um, just like the United States, has really developed its own system, its own regulations. Um, much of it's things you would expect, like lettered airspace or um, you know, VOR airways, but then they use it differently. So you may see, you know, a, say, a Class B and a Class C airspace stacked as opposed to next to each other. So you get these sort of interesting differences. Interesting. So let's get a little more granular, though. Let's go back and talk about the process. Um, one of the things that I'm sure many people are interested in is, you know, what do I, what do I really need to do and, and really, you know, just specifically, kind of, if you can, if you don't mind, trying to spell out the process and, and maybe even give us some insight as to some of the maybe some of the challenges or some of the fun things you found out. Uh, sure. So um, one of the first things you want to do, uh, even before you've arrived in Australia, is to open up a file. Um, in the United States, the FAA opens a file when you do your first medical or your first written test. But uh, in Australia, they actually have to open the file before you can do anything else. And that just is a, some paperwork and a copy of your passport. Um, you can find that on the CASA website, uh, which I think we have a link to here, but it's going to be uh, casa.gov.au. Okay. And when you send that file in, they're going to get you what they refer to as an ANR. That's your aviator reference number. And that reference number is going to go with you just like your pilot certificate number. But you're getting that even before you have a certificate. And that way, everything you send them is going to be tracked. And once you have that, now you can apply for the COV, which is the Certificate of Validation. But they're not going to approve that certificate until there's two other steps that are completed. Uh, one is a security uh, check, which, of course, does come at a fee. Uh, again, they ask for some additional paperwork. And the other part, and this is where it could get a little difficult, is the English language test. English language test. Well, we should all know English, right? You, you would think so. Um, this is one of those things I just cannot make up. Um, so some of the pilots, especially commercial pilots, might remember a few years ago, the United States started printing an English language endorsement onto the certificates. 
So your, your U.S. pilot certificate will say private pilot, English language proficient. The problem is that ICAO, when they recommended this, they came up with a six-level system uh, for, each, for proficiency, higher numbers being more proficient. And Australia adopted the six uh, levels, and the U.S. did not. So when you come from the United States into Australia, they don't know what level you're at. It doesn't match. And so no matter what country you come from, if you haven't used the ICAO system before, they make you go through an English language test. Interesting. So what, I mean, what kind of test is that? Is it like grammar? Is everything? Or You know, I, I wondered that as well. And so I, um, I called and I scheduled the test and they do it at a testing center just like we would go to a written testing center here. And I arrived and they checked my driver's license and I actually was there so long I got an Australian driver's license. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it looks really neat. And so they um, went ahead and looked at that, and they said, okay, have a seat. And they sit me down at a desk, and they picked up the phone. They called a headquarters, and they handed me the phone. They said, okay, talk to the phone. Okay. So on the other end of the line is a recording, and it asks you a series of questions over about 10 minutes. And you answer the questions, and it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. You just have to talk. And as you speak to it, it records you in these little 30-second segments. And when it's all done, I hung up the phone. The lady goes, you'll get the results in a couple hours. And sure enough, I went, I went back to where I was living. And uh, in that time, uh, an analyst had gone through the recording and actually graded me on grammar, pronunciation, and several other variables. So what now when you get this grading is it like a b c or is it do they give you the um, level or they go through the level okay and then they give you an overall uh, level and very fortunately for me I'm six across the board awesome so, very good um, <laughs> and it's important and so one of the reasons this matters so much to the Australians is that if you score something less than a six which is uh, native language basically they require that it be retested every so often and the lower level you have the more often it gets retested. Interesting. So when, and so I hear this obviously from my other shows that people uh, have actually are level four. And so that they have to actually go back and I never quite understood that they have to go back and retest. And that's because of the fact that just like you said, if there's a level six, then you don't have to be retested. But I think level four is every couple years or something like that. I can't really remember. I think so. As I recall, level four was actually the minimum. Mm -hmm. And if you were a four or five, you had to come back with uh, some frequency. I, I uh, found it actually as we were talking. It's every three years for level four and every six years for level five. Ah, so. That makes sense. Yeah, the thought is that uh, folks who have learned as a second language may not use it on a regular basis. And so they might lose some of that skill, sort of like my Spanish. Um, my Spanish has really dropped off. I think I'm in the negative levels now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. And interestingly, I think some of these people that go walking around some of the schools here in the U.S. will see some of those levels, those proficiency levels. A lot of times that's because of the schools, especially the new academies, since flight training has become such a big business right now, the academies will advertise that, like, you can get your level six or your level five, and we'll train you to that proficiency. They're, they're basically language schools within a flight school. 
uh, and and they use contractors and stuff like that. But it's it's quite interesting. I mean that that ICAO has come up with this, and it's a good idea, obviously, to have a specific language uh, that can be used throughout the world. Because I mean, we pass from one country to the next all the time. I mean, yesterday I was in what four different countries. I flew over five. Um, so it's nice to be able to speak to every different country using a specific language. So I think it was a smart idea to have some type of standardization. It really is. And having the levels, uh, makes a lot of sense. And each country can accept, uh, what level they think is acceptable for their market. Um, so the U S hasn't quite gotten to the numbering system. We might see that in the future. Um, I think you see that more in markets where you have a lot of international, because Australia, basically being an island, has to operate internationally quite a bit. So when are they going to start speaking English down there in Australia? This is a plug to my friends in Australia, by the way. <laughs> you realize they're going to ask you the same question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, But seriously, think about it. There are certain things. It's like I, I've actually, and I understand Australian, I guess is a good way to say it, the way that they speak and their accents, uh, just being around Australians quite a bit. And one of the things that... At first, so I think from the uninitiated, you'll listen to somebody like, what did they just say? And there's certain vernacular, there's certain terms they use that mean different things, like pick your mouth or, or whatever it is. Did you actually find or have any funny stories about maybe some of the words that you use or their vernacular that, that maybe caught you off guard? Yeah, I think the first time somebody said, uh, we're all going to Macca's, um, it, it, it took me a few minutes to realize that they meant McDonald's. Ah. Interesting. Um, but they tend to shorten things, as you mentioned. They, uh, there's a lot of shorter terms. Um, also, one day, I think somebody used the term rock up, and it, it took me a few minutes to realize they meant arrive. Oh, ah, cool. So you see some use. And I've adopted part of it. I use the expression no worries uh, no, quite I, a bit now. Yes. Yeah, I do that too. I, I, and not realizing that's probably from my, my Australian friends that I hang around with so much. They say no worries. I was like, okay, cool. Um, but it, it's really, it, it's cool though that. We, we realize that even though we know the same language, we also have to realize that we are so different, and it's, it's neat, those differences, too. And it's so much fun to learn about these different cultures and stuff, so I, I love that. Uh, and the, you definitely get to do that in Australia. Australia has uh, just a wide variety of terrain, a wide variety of, of, of cultures, and also of foods. Uh, just, it's just a phenomenal place that I've never been to, and I, I just would love to get down there. Just curious, uh, how, if you can answer this question, what do you think is your favorite part of Australia? Uh, I'm I'm going to stick with Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne, Australia, is a large city on the southeast corner, south of Sydney, and it's very uh, I don't want to say traditional, but it's, it's an older style, uh, almost sort of a colonial type thing. You know, brick buildings and train stations that look like they fell right out of you know early 20th century England. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a walking city. Everything's walkable. Uh, the people are nice. There's a coffee place in every corner. Uh, it's much more friendly than uh, some of the other bigger cities that are kind of newer and a little more sterile. It's, it kind of looks European. I've seen pictures of it. and it's, uh, it's really a beautiful city from the pictures. But do you ever notice how they sell, say it differently, though, than the one over here in Florida? Right. We would say uh, Melbourne, Florida. Right. Uh, but in Australia, if I said that, people would give me very dirty looks. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's it's Melbourne. Um, and same thing up in the Northeast. It's Cairns. Um, you know, I, I, and uh, Canberra is the capital. Gotcha. 
You know, it's funny because you, you hear, you know, David Allen talk about, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne, and, you know, what the differences are there. The The other thing that I think is absolutely wonderful about aviation is the fact that they, even at all the expenses, there is that populace of people that are really passionate about aviation. Um, as a matter of fact, talking before we go into, you know, the books and stuff like that, talking about the flying in Australia, it can be a little bit more expensive than in the U.S. I think that's also one of the shocks that I hear from people. Did you experience that? Um, I did. I rented a Piper Cherokee, um, something very comparable to the one I own, actually. And I think I paid at least a 20% premium over what we pay in the U.S. But the real kicker was in order to get that price, I had to take two trains and go a half hour out of the city to a taxi to a small airport. <laughs> um, so you, you do see a little bit of higher cost in terms of uh, rentals. And I would imagine that the checkout process uh, would also be a bit longer. I did all my flying with instructors so that I wouldn't have to worry about the regulations and airspace. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it, it does get a little more expensive. Um, and I think that's why we don't see quite as many Australians engaged in, in the flying. Um, I had an Australian student uh, actually here in Daytona Beach a number of years ago, and that was that was really cool. He had come up to learn to fly. So if you're going to go down there and you want to prepare to get your license, uh, what other things should you do as far as book knowledge? Is there anything you should start studying? So uh, the Australians put out uh, some of their own books. Uh, they're a little bit harder to get. Uh, in the U.S., so I've actually brought a lot back with me. Um, but there's also a couple companies that do online training courses, and um, I think um, I'll send you the link after we can get that on the website. And um, going through some of those, I've used some of those, and they help quite a bit. But really, it's going to come down to getting a local instructor and having them show you what's not in the books. How do you do things? How do you stay out of trouble? Um, if you're just wanting to go down and fly for a couple days, it may be uh, cheaper and certainly a lot less hassle to simply hire the instructor to fly with you. Um, I've done that not only in Australia, but I've also done that in England, uh, where it was much easier just to pay for an instructor for a period of time. Well, I do that here in the U.S. I mean, I go and I pay for an instructor instead of doing a checkout. And it's like, I only want to go up for a half hour, an hour, and then I might as well just go up with an instructor because I have to do a checkout anyway. So there are times in the U.S. you might do that too. So, um, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I got to do that in England, and uh, I explained to him that I was a pilot, and he goes, all right, well, you can you can fly the plane. I actually bought an air tour. He's like, you can just fly it. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> that's awesome. The As far as the books I just mentioned, how about the written exam? That, I've heard, is a little bit different than the U.S. Uh, it, it very much is. Uh, they refer to them as theory exams, and much like Europe, uh, they rely more heavily on them, in part because flying is so expensive, they shift some of the training to the ground, uh, but also they just feel that there's a, an importance. And so you, if you go for a private pilot, I don't believe there's a written test. But if you were looking at, say, a commercial level or an instrument, there is. And their instrument test is extremely difficult. Uh, the number of people that pass in the first try is only about 50%. Uh, the overall pass rate is about 66 And... Um, it, uh, I remember taking, I had to take the instrument test as part of my conversion to ATP, and there was one poor person in the testing center who had, was in front of me and failed it for the third time. Wow. Because, and that was after three hours. It took the full three hours 
it's open book. You can check the regulations, and people bring in large stacks of books. Um, but you also bring in the charts. And interestingly, Australia, because the population is smaller, the number of airports is a little bit smaller. So uh, people actually bring in all of the paper charts, and you have to do the test with the paper charts. So, that, so yeah, another thing you have to buy is the charts. I'm assuming that's a government organization that prints them. It was, and uh, it came with equivalent pricing. Uh, <laughs> it was, it, it was fairly expensive, and especially for something I was only going to use once. I actually donated them to the local flying school when I left. Um, but what's really interesting, they'll have a question, and it won't be as knowledge-based as the U.S. It'll be more of, can you figure it out? And you, they'll say, what is the lowest altitude you can fly in this direction? And then you're going to have to go to a chart. You may have to go to an approach plate. You're going to have to do some math. And then they like to trick you. They, they have one where they ask you about the hemispheric rule. And their hemispheric rule is the same as ours in terms of uh, going even west and, and odd to the east. Mm -hmm. And they show you an airway and they ask you what altitude to fly. And the airway is magnetically in one direction, but, on the, but it's true north. Based on true north, it goes the other way. And so if you just looked at the chart and you, and you weren't thinking, it would look like it went in the other direction. Oh, boy. That's so you really crazy. had to <laughs> – yeah. And so um, fortunately, I took a test uh, – a prep uh, program, and they had, they had mentioned that was one of the risks. Um, unlike the U.S., though, they don't publish the questions. Uh, they're not required to. And so um, there's a couple of providers out there that have duplicated some of the questions or made similar ones. But a lot of this, the first time you're going to see it is when you get into the exam. So you really, it's not so much about knowing and memorizing things as it is knowing where to find the information because you're only going to have three hours to go through the test. And it takes the whole three hours? It took everyone in the room the whole three hours. Wow. And I walked out with an 80% after three hours. <laughs> that's incredible. So, yeah, you really got to know your stuff, that's for sure. And it's a, a lot of studying. And that's cool, though. It's a challenge. You know, that, that's an, you can't just memorize the, the answers. Um, and I think uh, hats off to you, by the way, and congratulations on that. <laughs> How about going down there with – I know you have to do a written exam uh, – and actually a practical test? Is there anything else, uh, requirements, maybe a medical? Uh, they are. So if you're going over just with a certificate of validation, they'll take the U.S. medical. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be doing a, an Australian medical, which is a bit more expensive and a bit more involved. Uh, so I, I did one of these, and I did uh, the first-class medical uh, since I was going the commercial route. And it was, I won't say all up, it cost about 500 U.S. dollars to get through all the tests. Wow. And so there was an initial doctor appointment followed by uh, a cholesterol check and an EKG. And I, I'm 32 now. I was late 20s at the time. Um, but they require that of everyone. And um, they really did do the medical and they went through and they checked. And then they sent me to an optometrist. I wear glasses. So they had me go to an optometrist and do a second <laughs> eye test. So it was a couple-day process. It was very involved. If someone is looking to convert um, their license into Australian, you got to realize this is a lengthy process between the paperwork and the medicals. It's, so it's not something where you're going to come down on the first day of your trip and be flying two, three days later, um, at least not without an instructor. So I would say if somebody wants to go down to Australia and, and do this, go down the first time planning to hire the instructor and, and learn about the system and get the paperwork all straightened out and then plan to do solo on your next trip. 
and that's going to be a lot less stress. So if somebody's starting this process and, you know, I know you knew the area because of the fact you were down there, but me, who's never been anywhere near Australia except on a map, what would you suggest my, you know, how do I start this process? Uh, well, a lot of the local flight schools, unfortunately, are not as familiar. They don't see as many people converting into Australian as we do in the U.S. in terms of international conversion. Um, but uh, the website is probably the most helpful place to look. It's going to be the casa.gov.au, uh, uh, where you can just uh, Google AU CASA and it comes up. And they've got a lot of good guides. Uh, a few years ago, it's been probably more than a few years now, but Somewhere around six years ago, they started to do a conversion process where they upgraded and, and changed a lot of their training and their uh, regulations. And they actually wanted to become more in line with the U.S., so they've relabeled it Part 61 to match the U.S. one. And when they went through that change, there was uh, it was a little hard to get information for a little while. But now they've gone ahead and gotten caught up, and they've created a lot of good user guides that talk you through the process. Um, so that's your best resource. You can also email them. They're not great on phone, but they're really good by email, um, especially with the time difference. So your license in Australia can be used uh, in many different areas. I had assumed that you could just fly over to New Zealand and use your pilot certificate there. I would imagine that they would accept it. I didn't specifically look at New Zealand. Um, they do have some re reciprocating policy. But even though the license may come over pretty fairly easily, uh, the regulations differ. Uh, New Zealand is much more in line with the ICAO model. It's almost an identical match to the ICAO standards. Um, so there is going to be some differences there. So even if you did come over, you'd want to get an instructor and get familiar with the, with the local rules. Interesting. Well, you know, another thing I was thinking, how about other licenses? I mean, do is there an active, say, uh, glider or balloonist, that type of thing over there? Uh, they do specify just like we do. I, I don't remember specifically if there was a balloon. I do believe there was glider. Mm -hmm. um, I've gone ahead and on mine, of course, I've checked the seaplane boxes since I have seaplane ratings here in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, the way they handle it can be a little bit different. So they also, I'm assuming, getting in line with the drones just like they've happened in the U.S. I wonder if they're just as popular there. Uh, they are, and their drone laws are very similar to ours, um, although they're enforced much more closely in terms of what you can do with a commercial drone license. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they're seeing a lot of the same questions, and they're populating a lot of very similar regulations. Well, so that's what's interesting. So basically, if you're going to do this process, you know, what is some of the just overall advice? Like, if you could just have one, two, or three things to take away from getting your Australian license, what would you suggest? Uh, the first thing I'd say, of course, is be patient. It's going to be a bit of a process getting through this. Uh, and the second thing is I would find someone local. Um, I know uh, we've talked about some Australian flight instructors we know, and I think it would be good to get in touch with some of them as well as look through the materials from CASA, and that'll give you a good idea. But patience is really going to be key in this process. So what's next for, you know, we've got all this, and obviously if people have questions, they can email us but and click on the contact page. But what's next for, for our adventure pilot here, you know, Chris Bazala, and that's what I'm calling you now as an adventure pilot. Uh, what, what other flying adventures are, are you going on or, or have you been on that, that uh, might be similar to this? Uh, well, so after I started this process, um, I came back 
uh, about a year later to go ahead and do another uh, theory exam, another written. And after that, I thought, eh, why not you know, head up to uh, Vanuatu? So uh, Vanuatu is a small island chain in the Pacific. It's north of New Zealand. And uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful island chain, just the most wonderful people you'll meet. Um, I think I was the only American tourist on the island. There was one other American on the island. He runs the bar. <laughs> and uh, I know that because every single person pointed that out to me. Um, uh, they don't see a lot of Americans because there's no direct flights from the U.S., uh, but a lot of Australians. And, um, of course, you know, when you've got an island chain that has over 70 islands, um, I don't know the exact number because each local told me a different number, but it was something over 70. <laughs> and you really do need air travel um, to, to not only get in there to move, move between them. And so one day... Um, I went on one of these, it's sort of a scheduled charter where you, you buy a seat along some other people. And we took a trip from uh, the island I was on over to an island that had a volcano on it. And so we land on this volcano island and it's the plane we're in is this uh, Piper, uh, something from the Piper Navajo series. And so we fly over and um, we land there and we go on up the volcano and it's, you know, of course it's an active volcano so it's really cool. We're watching this volcano go. and and afterwards, we go back, and, and we hop on the plane, and, and the pilot goes up and goes, all right, we're going to go see the volcano now. Wait, what? Uh-oh. <laughs> and so the next thing I know, we're, we're circling the volcano with this airplane. <laughs> oh, and wow. it's just some of the best photos uh, I've ever gotten. Uh, the pilot was actually Australian. He was uh, living there as an expat, time-building on his career. Uh, and so on the way back, I finally got a chance to talk to him, and things had kind of calmed down. We took this evening flight. And I asked him a lot about the regulations, and he said, yeah, actually, um, Vanuatu and, and many of the Pacific Islands are very close to ICAO, uh, and to the extent that ICAO doesn't cover it, they adopt New Zealand's regulations. And that way, the whole Pacific can be very standardized, and each government doesn't have to come up with their own set of regulations. Uh, in, you know, another thing, about if you ever get a chance, go look on a map, and just some amazing history there, especially with the U.S. during World War II, and all these island chains, you know, near the Solomons and Papua New Guinea and Papua Indonesia and all. Uh, but you aren't very far from an American territory, are you, when you're in Vanuatu? You could, I don't know if you can fly there, but uh, Samoa, American Samoa, is actually not far from there, is it? Uh, not too far, especially if you've got an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, so in, on my trip, I stayed within, within the Vanuatu um, area. But, uh, but absolutely, I mean, you know, aircraft are very critical to, to flying in the Pacific, and you find a lot of small airlines uh, operating in that region. Well, and, and that's the, the reason I think I, I would love to people to look at a map of the area is it is so critical to have an aircraft in all these different island countries. I mean, I spend a lot of time flying around the Caribbean islands, and it cuts down time dramatically. I mean, we're talking 15, 20-minute plane ride as opposed to hours worth of getting you know getting on a boat and going over to another island and uh, trying to you know navigate the waters etc especially if you have like a turboprop or a jet and you know i could see just like in some of the other places like in alaska how they have become so dependent on airplanes just like australia having such a large territory to to fly across i really was and i I think we've talked about this before but at one point my career i actually lived in the Caribbean and flew the island hoppers. Uh, and, and that also was just you know, a beautiful place. And it, it was so uh, necessary, really, to have aircraft. And otherwise, you just couldn't go anywhere. 
And that's, you know, another cool thing would be to head down to, uh, and I'm thinking on your next adventure is to fly down to Antarctica. So that would be really cool. Did we <laughs> did we talk about that once? I, I, well, just the fact my wife used to live in Antarctica, but uh, when she was stationed I there with the Navy, think we did once. Uh, while I was in Australia on that on that trip, um, I actually did have the opportunity to go to Antarctica on a seven forty seven. Cool. Did and you, so we didn't land. Oh wow, that's neat. Is it like a tour? It is. It's a tour program. Uh, it's an overflight, of course. There's really nowhere to land a 7-4 in Antarctica. Uh, but a charter company runs about six of these a year out of Australia, out of all the big cities. And they work in conjunction with Qantas. And they have a Qantas 747 with a specially trained flight crew and a special set of procedures. And they take off. So in our case, we departed uh, Melbourne and flew the four hours to the shelf. And then it doesn't go right over the pole, but instead it comes around the outer side of the shelf so that you can actually see Antarctica. And it hovers for about four hours and then turns around and comes back. So it's a, it's a long day. It's about a 12-hour operation. Uh, but it's absolutely the fastest and most comfortable way you're going to see Antarctica. Wow. I'm, I'm in. I mean, that, that is such a cool thing to do. This is one thing I love about aviation. There are so many things we can see. Uh, just by using an airplane, uh, you know, I get it, it's a 747, but you know, we all love airplanes, and just to have that opportunity to jump in a plane and see the world and get a different perspective on life would be would be just awesome. That that'll be something. I'll, maybe we could you could find a link, and maybe we could put that in the show notes too, as to far as, as uh, flying over the you know the Antarctica there, and maybe even the South yeah. Pole if you can. That's that'd be really really cool. Um, now, getting back to you know this this adventure flying, and I just think it's so cool. There's so many different things that you can do with it, and that's what I like about talking to you about the flying is that it always seems like you're on to something next. I know we've talked to other people about flying around in Africa on safaris and fly safaris. There's just so much out there that you can do, and I would encourage you not just look at your Australian license, but look at many other different avenues that you can go, even if it's not getting a license, but flying in areas and seeing things that you never would have the possibility of seeing any other way and, and experience some of these amazing different cultures because you, you know there's just so much you can read about you learn so much more by experience it and that's what's been great about you uh, is that you've actually get out there and, and experience things i think that's awesome so yeah it's really uh, definitely been an adventure um especially all the way down to the dc3 actually <laughs> there was i even got a chance to fly in one of those and uh, that was that was really cool yeah that must be an awesome did you actually get to fly the plane uh, no, actually, they have a regular flight crew that flies it uh, for the insurance purposes. But they let me sit the jump seat for the landing on uh, King Island in Australia. So that was uh, really cool. Well, awesome. Awesome. Well, gosh, uh, this has been great having you here to talk about getting your Australian pilot license and also some of your other adventures that are out there. Um, but, uh, you know, we're coming up on our time here. I just wanted to ask you, you know, what else is there out there? I think uh, we may have talked, we didn't get to talk about this uh, much, but you are, uh, I think, republishing something. It's like a radio communications guide. You're suggesting something. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that before we go. Uh, certainly. So uh, one of the products that uh, Three Point Aviation produces is actually a set of radio communication guides. Uh, the ones we make are for the Daytona Beach area. And the idea is that um, students need help when they learning radio communications. And it's really hard to memorize all the things that need to be said uh, or the order in which it needs to be said. And so a number of years ago when I was working as an instructor, I created these little handheld books 
where the student could flip through and it had a script with blanks where necessary. And the student could actually read off the script, fill in the blanks, and uh, talk to air traffic control. And then it would have the next line showing what the controller would say back to them. And this um, sped up the training process quite a bit, uh, having these flip books, because when you've got an airplane that's with an instructor that's costing, say, $120 an hour, that's $2 a minute for every minute that we're sitting there trying to go over this. So it really sped up the training process and took a lot of stress off the students. Ultimately, uh, what I'd like to see is, is not just myself doing this, but other instructors. Uh, so I think what I'll do is I'll provide a, a sample of this. And I think that all flight schools should go ahead and make a little handheld guide, even if it's just a single sheet of paper, that can talk a student uh, through the process of being able to talk to air traffic control. And I think that's a real confidence booster. That's a, that is a great tool. So they can find that uh, in the links in the show notes or just go to the number three point aviation.com. And that's uh, your website there. You have a lot of different things out there and the guides, the, you know, the, the holding pattern guide, everything that's, you've just been out there producing so much material. And I think that's awesome. But uh, Chris, this has been great speaking with you and I can't wait to have you back on again uh, next time to talk about some of the other adventure flying you've been doing and the different aircraft uh, that you've been flying. And, I, and the other thing too, I, I can't wait to hear back from you about your, so maybe some of your airline adventures. I mean, that, I, I know some people listening think, you know, it's airline flying is, you know, no fun, blah, blah, blah. You don't get to, it's not as adventuresome, but it really is, you know, especially when you're doing what you're doing, moving into a new airplane and getting to see some of those new destinations. I'm sure you're pretty excited. Oh, I'm very excited. Um, you know, I'm moving into a new company and also, um, you know, moving into a little bit larger airplane. Uh, so, you know, it's an opportunity for me to pick up some new airports. And uh, I think they said New Orleans was going to be including the destinations. So this should be good. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, Chris, thanks for being here. And uh, thank you for listening. And I really encourage a listener right now to go out there and think about doing something new, something that's adventuresome. It may not be going to Australia. You may have a limited budget, but you can always find something else to do. Maybe it's even just a new rating or trying a new aircraft, getting your tailwheel endorsement, whatever it may be. But just get out there and find something, just like he's talked about. Find somebody who's had that experience and talk to them. Talking's free. And uh, just do something now just to get out and and just expand your love of aviation and experience so many different worlds and cultures and that's what's so wonderful about aviation well folks we really appreciate your listening we'll talk to you next episode safe flying you've been listening to the stuck mike abcast members of the stuck mike abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast compensation may be received in the form of but not limited to referral commissions free products or service trials our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show the stuck mike abcast is an aviation podcast and a valeri aviation corporation production